In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Amen. These are the closing words of the Magnificat, which we sing during Vespers every week, which Mary, the mother of our Lord Jesus, sang by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In it, her soul magnified the Lord, and her spirit rejoiced in God her Savior. This morning, we make use of these words in order to help us examine what Jesus has taught us about the rich man and Lazarus. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. This is clearly fulfilled in what Abraham said from heaven to the rich man in hell who cried out to him for mercy. Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. In other words, he is... He is filled with good things, and you are sent empty away. From this, some have put forward the idea that the gospel is really just a great equalizing force that should make the rich less rich and the gospel less poor. Making things fair is the gospel's goal, they say, or at least they mean to say. And so the gospel becomes nothing more than a recipe for equalizing things on earth. This notion of what the gospel is, is not new. It is more devoted to earthly things than to heavenly things, and so it is as old as sin itself. In recent years, we've heard a lot about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Taking our college campuses and our government institutions by storm. The diversity part is intended to help evaluate who is more equal than others. Promoting diversity provides more and more and endless ways to show disparity between the haves versus the have-nots, whether by race, sex, language, religion, or preferred form of sexual perversion. It is intended to multiply the ways by which we might might distinguish the rich from the poor. It maximizes discontent and resentment. The inclusion part is intended to help evaluate who gets to be treated more fairly than others. So by promoting inclusion, those who have certain social, financial, or cultural advantages, the rich, are instructed to regard those who have lower morals, less money, and inferior habits as the poor and needy among us, the disadvantaged. The poor ought not to be excluded. Rather, the rich should learn from them and share with them whatever advantages they may have. The equity part is what started it all. It seems the most reasonable of the three, actually, But the promotion of equity in today's current political and cultural context is actually 
the most offensive. And this is, first of all, because it takes the name of the noble virtue that we are inclined to approve of, equity, and twists it into something else. Equity, biblically speaking, really just means that we are to seek justice with one another by considering in each scenario how we might also show mercy at the same time. As Christians, we know that mercy is greater than justice. Christians must always be equitable in their quest for justice. Insisting on what is right should always be tempered and informed by the desire to win a brother and not just put him in his place. For instance, we should all learn to sit still and listen, right? But how I or any of us responds to a three-year-old yelling and thumping in the middle of this sermon, or during the creed, is quite different from how we would react to a 15-year-old doing the same thing. We seek justice by taking context into consideration. This is equity. There are some of you who might casually take God's name in vain as a bad habit. It is a sin against God to say, oh God, when you're not praying. I don't usually correct you. I'll say a prayer for you and ignore the mistake on account of your weakness. Because if you do this, you're weak. But there are some of you who are stronger in this regard. And we both know it. I will clearly rebuke you if I hear you saying, oh God, when you're not praying. We must consider context in the interest of serving mercy even more than justice. The same goes for church attendance. Another good example, if some of you are absent for a few weeks or even one Sunday, I am concerned, lest it be sickness or possibly some sin. With others, I bear with the weakness and I encourage what you in your weakness can manage, even though, of course, it is a sin to despise preaching in his word, whether you're weak or strong. Equity doesn't change what is right, but it is precious to us because it seeks mercy above justice. And this can be abused, of course, but the instinct is good. It is a Christian instinct. We consider things like age, intelligence, upbringing, sex, and other factors when we pursue justice. We uphold what should be, but we take human weakness and distinction into consideration because we love each other. Equity is good. Equity is our pursuit of mercy while we also pursue justice, and this is because we are not trying to make everything perfect. That's not the goal of the law. The goal of the law is to expose us as sinners in need of mercy. So we acknowledge the imperfections just as we acknowledge our own sins and we pursue together the perfection of heaven by means of the gospel of mercy that saves imperfect sinners. Only then can the law also guide us in the way of righteousness. Only then do we ever get a taste of heaven on earth. Only then when we are first clothed in mercy with the righteousness of Christ. Equity, as the Bible teaches, is very good. But the way it is defined these days apart from the Bible is not good. As it is defined today, it turns the gospel 
into a social cause by which the unequal conditions of earth must be conformed to the equal conditions of heaven. It reduces everything to material advantages and seeks to bring heaven to earth rather than earth-born sinners up to heaven. But that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is not a great ersatz, as theologians used to call it, back when it was okay to speak German. Ersatz means replacement. But the gospel is not a great replacement or exchange of wealth and poverty, making amends for all disparity. This false understanding of equity twists the gospel into a call to perfect the conditions of man by what we must do as though love must first exist from us on earth in order for us to find love on earth. But this replaces the good news of salvation of God's love for sinners who have no power to improve their standing with God. And this is the true ersatz, or replacement theology. It replaces the gospel with the law. No wonder those who promote this diversity Inclusion and equity are such bullies. All they have is the law. And this is the greatest and most offensive error that we see behind many political movements. It is that they take the name of the gospel in vain. Everything else is a distraction. Everything else will rightly get under our skin and get us all upset, especially if you watch too much Fox News or something. We don't like getting guilt trips for how we and our parents and our children look as though it were a sin to have light skin. We don't like getting guilt trips for having used our time and money wisely as our parents taught us how, as though it were a sin to enjoy the fruit of our industry. We don't like getting guilt trips for speaking and behaving morally and respectfully as though it were a sin not to sin. But all of this is just a distraction to get us worked up about false guilt. Who cares about false guilt? The core offense of this momentous movement known as diversity, equity, and inclusion, more commonly called wokeism, the core offense that is bringing down Western civilization before our eyes is this, that it presents the gospel as something that we must do rather than as something given for all men to believe. Is this not more offensive? Not that false guilt is heaped upon us? Bring it on. Who repents of false sins? but that the true and abiding message of divine mercy by which real guilt is forgiven by God in heaven is turned into a burdensome task for humanity to pursue on earth. The gospel is not something you must do. It is something you must believe. We must maintain this above all. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So Karl Marx, the famous father of communism, was by no means the first to suggest what he is famous for promoting. His purpose, like many of his in his time, following the falsely named Age of Enlightenment, really the Age of Endarkenment, 
His purpose was to prevent the great Christian theme of redemption as a call for social action. And since we cannot be expected to believe that heaven awaits those who languish in poverty on earth, what he called the opiate of the masses, if you've heard that, well, since that's nonsense, we must redeem the impoverished by making the conditions of man more heavenly. This must be what Jesus meant when he blessed the poor in spirit. Their reward must be obtained on earth, but what blasphemy. And since social action needs, to, needs a push to get started, communism would require a little political action too. Instead of almighty God blessing the poor, the almighty state must. Oh, we hate what it's done to our country. But communism is a heresy more than merely a bad political ideology. It does more harm to souls than it does to any nation. It didn't spring from nowhere. It sprang from a misunderstanding of the gospel itself. It sprang from hearts like yours and mine's, mine that seek to first improve the conditions of our own life in order to make ourselves worthy for the heaven which God promises. It is a temptation to look at what we do, what we change, in order to see proof that God will give what he promises. It is a heresy that turns the gospel into to a command to make life on earth more heavenly, rather than as a promise to bring sinners to heaven. God our Savior fills the hungry with good things. He sends the rich empty away. Mary is obviously not talking about earthly riches per se. She's singing not about those who have money, but those who love money. Money is not the root of evil. The love of money is. God commands us to love our neighbor, not by making sure his needs, or making sure we don't have material things more than he has, but by seeking to meet his need, as though his needs were our own needs. So what do we need most? Money? Well, then by all means, sell all that you have and give to the poor. If that's what you need most, because then I suppose that's what your neighbor needs most too. But no, that's not what you need most. Learn what you need most. It's what your neighbor needs most too. Oh, no one anything but to love one another, the apostle tells us. So love one another. Learn what it means. And learn what it means, not by seeing where you succeed, but by seeing where you fail and where God came down to save you from your failure to love. And show you a love that is only obtained by begging for a love that you find not in your own heart, but a love that God reveals from heaven. Learn how to love by learning how God has loved you in Christ. Learn God's love by learning how you need forgiveness and peace more than anything. Let's consider by way of example the difference between how, the, how two Lazaruses were treated by those who had more money than they. Now I don't refer here to the Lazarus whom Jesus raised from the dead, although he easily comes to mind. And I've worked him into other sermons on this very text. But rather I think first of the Lazarus mentioned in our Old Testament lesson. Yes, Lazarus is the Greek form of Eliezer. Eliezer means, my God helps. In our Old Testament lesson, Abraham complained that he has no heir. 
He complains that if he doesn't get an heir, he'll have to leave all this stuff to his slave, Eliezer, Lazarus, whom he evidently picked up in Damascus on his way into the promised land. Is this really Abraham's concern? That he will have to give all his money to a slave? What, does he want it for himself? Of course not. God promised Abraham that in his seed, all nations would be blessed. Then God departed. Abraham sat with this promise for years, with no evidence whatsoever that God would keep his promise. All he had was the promise itself. All he had was the word of God. God promised that from his own body would come the seed of the woman, long ago promised in Eden, the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head and redeem mankind from sin, death, and hell. Oh, what a promise that Abraham Abraham had to ponder. And yet all he could do was ponder. He saw no evidence that it was true. Like us, Abraham was tempted to determine what God thought of him by external evidence and proof. He was tempted to be assured that God's word is true by what he saw. But what he saw, and he had a lot of it to see because he was very rich, brought him no assurance. By God's grace, he was rescued from this temptation by seeing the vanity of money. God came to him and told him not to be afraid by promising that he was his shield and great reward. He was promising to be himself his heir. He was promising to be the redeemer who would redeem all nations. And Abraham believed the Lord's promise and his faith was counted as righteousness. So what good was his wealth? What what did his wealth do for him? His wealth was all a gift from God, but none of it could assure him that God counted him as righteous. He could manage it and he could increase it, but he counted it as nothing. The rich man, Abram, complains not that he lacks wealth. He complains that it's worthless. And he teaches all his seed, all believers, to do the same. Even if you don't discover it in your own experience, but to believe that money will not give you what you need most from God. Abram complains that all he has to pass down to Eliezer, Lazarus, is mere money. And so must we if that's all we have. Rather than count our poverty and struggles as evidence that perhaps God is unmindful of our plight, we should count our wealth and luxuries the dangerous distractions they are. What will you give me? Abraham asked. Not more money. Not more gold and silver. Worthless. Not more luxuries and purple clothing. Give me my Savior. Give me what is worth giving to my beloved servant. Give me what is more precious than gold or silver or a cattle on a thousand hills. Give me him who will come to redeem me with his own most precious blood. Eliezer's name means my God helps, and this is how he helps. As Mary taught us to sing, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. God remembered Abraham, and God remembered Lazarus. As Jesus tells the story in our gospel this morning, God remembered them by remembering his mercy. Lazarus knew that God is not a respecter of persons. He knew this as we sang a little bit ago, all are alike before the highest. Tis easy. To our God we know to raise thee up, though low thou liest, to make the rich man poor and low. The goal of faith is not to undo this, 
The goal of faith is to see what Lazarus also believed, true wonders still by him are wrought, who setteth up and brings to naught. And a far greater wonder than making the rich man poor, the rich beggar rich, or in equalizing the conditions of man on earth as though we thereby created heaven for ourselves. A far greater wonder is bringing unholy sinners to live forever in heaven with their holy God. And he does this through Christ, his son, who bears all our sin and gives us all his obedience. He becomes poor for us so that we might be rich. He endures all God's anger and gives us all God's favor. This is the erzatz, the great exchange that we trust in. That God takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. It is what Lazarus trusted in. It is the same shield and great reward that Abraham trusted in. He believed in what he heard and ignored what he saw, and his faith was counted to him for righteousness. And that's why he, brought, he was brought to Abraham's bosom. Because he shared with Abraham what Abraham loved most. The Lord Jesus, who brings poor sinners to heaven when they die. The poverty that most concerned this Lazarus was not the poverty of earthly life. Though, like all of us, he desired material things. Crumbs, so do we but they amount to nothing but what falls from tables, and we know it. No, but the poverty that most concerned Lazarus was the poverty that most concerned Abraham. It is poverty that taught rich man and poor man alike to beg. It is the poverty that most concerns us, and so we beg. It is that we lack in our hearts the strength of faith that we should have, we lack in our lives the love and holiness that God requires. We lack in ourselves that righteousness that we must have in heaven if we are ever going to get there. We lack love. We need what the rich Abraham and the poor Lazarus needed most. We need Jesus. We need our God to help us. We need to inherit not Abraham's fortune, but his reward. God helps us by remembering mercy, and he remembers his mercy and teaches us to remember it, too, by making promises to us in the Bible, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. Those who look for heaven on earth never truly love the poor. They cannot. They don't know what love is, and they don't know what the poor need. What we need in our wealth is what we need in our poverty. We need to count both what we see and what we don't see as equally deceptive and cling instead to what we are given to hear and believe. God is love. His love is revealed not where earthly conditions turn heavenly. His love is revealed where we are rescued from earth and brought to heaven. It is revealed where the heavenly Christ comes down to earth to bear our sin, God's judgment, and to bring us from this veil of tears to himself in heaven. And in the meantime, before our journey end, he feeds us with more than crumbs, the very body and blood that bore God's wrath, given to us by him who rose again to guarantee for us a resurrection. God doesn't send good people to hell. God brings sinners to heaven. He doesn't send the hungry away empty. He can't. He fills us with good things. He fills us what he teaches us to beg for. He fills us what he with what he promises to give us. He teaches us to believe his word. 
we believe it, and our faith is counted as righteousness. We fix our hearts in heaven where our treasure is, and where our hearts are now lifted, we ourselves will soon be comforted. In Jesus' name, amen. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding shall guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus unto eternal life.